Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hangover Podcast. I am Andrew Alex Live from Blacksburg, Virginia. I am joined today by my good friends. First, in the 7 by 7 we have the one and only Ricky LeBlue. Ricky, you excited to be here today, my friend? Excited to be here, yes. Excited to continuing spouting negativity about the program that is Virginia Tech football. Absolutely not, but here we are. Well, someone has to do it. Someone has to do it. And I think you might be the man for the job. On the <laughs> other side of the Commonwealth, we have my friend, Mike McDaniel. Mike, what's going on, man? Another Monday in the books, boys. Another Monday in the books. How y'all doing? It's going all right, man. It's going all right. Just like you said, just got the case of the Mondays over with. My my cat, spirit animal, Garfield, would be proud. And now we got to talk about what went down over the weekend, folks. Justin Fuente came into the Miami game without a win against a top 10 opponent, and he left without a win against a top 10. How long did it take you to come up with that intro, Andrew? <laughs> that, one was, uh, that one was right off the cuff, boys. But we're going to discuss everything. Virginia Tech, you know, they, they had their chance, but they blew it, and they could not get their season back afloat, at least not on Saturday, we will discuss everything from an improved defensive performance to a questionable offensive performance at best and everything this means in the long term. But first, I am going to inform you that this podcast is brought to you by the good folks over at Main Street Pharmacy. Main Street Pharmacy in downtown Blacksburg is the pharmacy that you want to go to if you want a pharmacy that actually cares about you at all. Yeah, you know, CVS, hate to say it, to you, they are just a number on a very long Excel sheet. To Jeremy, you are his neighbor. And also probably for the sake of organization and keeping records, also probably on a spreadsheet, but the difference is that he does care about you personally. So if you want a pharmacy that truly cares about you and the community that you live in, look no further than Main Street Pharmacy. Dr. Jeremy Counts and his wonderful staff will take care of everything you need. We haven't done this one in a while, boys, so I, I think this will be a good way to start off. Virginia Tech, double-digit lead in the second half against Miami. They failed to close the deal. An improved defensive performance, the offense completely stalls out at the end. Mike, you can go first, because I, I want to hear what Ricky has to say after. Give me one word to describe Virginia Tech's performance against the U on Saturday? Uneven again. I mean, I thought the defense played well. Uh, 
De'Ara King was running for his life all game, and I thought Virginia Tech did a pretty good job keeping him confined to the pocket. Um, he didn't have a ton of success scrambling against the Hokies, which is something that he's done uh, to other teams that he's faced. He came into the game against Virginia Tech with over 400 yards rushing on the year, so he wasn't just getting it done through the air. He was getting it done on the ground as well. Um, but he's a guy who, you know, he's most dangerous when he's on the run. And I thought Virginia Tech did a pretty nice job overall keeping him in the pocket. I thought the linebackers played well. Uh, the defensive line, obviously, Gerard Hewitt had a huge game um, getting after the quarterback. He had, what, two and a half sacks in this game, wearing Beamer's 25 jerseys. That was obviously a, a good performance by him. Um, Dax Hollyfield, 13 tackles, his best game of the year. Devin Taylor played very well. Um, he had 11 tackles, uh, pass defended, tackle for loss. Rayshard Ashby, I thought, played well also in this game. And Breon Murray had a nice bounce back game. He struggled in coverage the last few weeks. I thought he was better overall in this football game. So uh, Virginia Tech overall, I thought, as a team, held Miami down um, defensively as far as running the football is concerned. The Hurricanes averaged under three yards per carry. So that was something that needed to be done if the Hokies wanted any chance of winning this football game. We knew that they were going to have to slow down the Miami zone rushing attack first. And I thought they did a pretty good job of that overall in this game. Um, where, where Tech lost this game was uh, offensively, obviously struggling in the uh, second half, primarily in the fourth quarter, um, really just couldn't convert when they needed to. Um, Virginia Tech's offensive drives in the fourth quarter, I wouldn't necessarily call them a sight to behold. Um, Virginia Tech uh, had multiple punts. They had a missed field goal. They had an interception. So it just wasn't very good in the fourth quarter. I thought they got way too conservative with the play calling. Um, I thought having, it's pretty apparent to me now that not having Khalil Herbert at 100% is a real detriment to the offense. And I know a lot of people are going to listen to that and say, oh my God, of course it's a detriment to the offense. Um, but Virginia Tech offensively running the football, it's basically Hendon Hooker or Bust, which is kind of what we've been saying for a couple of weeks now. And I think that was confirmed in the fourth quarter on Saturday when the Hokies really couldn't consistently get anything going. And it was clear that uh, that Herbert was not 100 percent and they were being careful of the carries that they were giving to him and monitoring his workload. Virginia Tech really needs him to be healthy if they want any real chance of success offensively. So that was a major takeaway for me. Ricky, give me your one word predictable and when I say that I don't mean that I predicted it but Vegas predicted it Mike you nailed it when we were doing this preview for the Miami pod you said that this was one of those random ass Vegas lines where tech was a two-point favorite it made less than zero sense it made negative sense and um Sure enough, Virginia Tech had an 11-point lead in the third quarter of this game. Uh, now, Virginia Tech proceeded to go into a shell offensively, and then the defense later faltered down the stretch, um, which that part is entirely predictable because, uh, as we are seeing, Virginia Tech is playing losing football. Um, as much as Tech fans don't want to hear that, that's exactly what's happening right now. So, Anytime you blow an 11-point lead in, in midway through the third quarter, that's losing football. Virginia Tech um, didn't play well enough down the stretch to win this game, and it's it was a predictable finish to a shocking start, at least in my eyes. But give Vegas their credit, boys. They called this one from the get-go, and um, 
I guess I got to give them credit for that, even though I still think they're they uh they hit the ball a bit too hard before they before they made the lines for this game. Yeah, and Ricky, you kind of stole my one word. Uh, <laughs> you said predictable. I was gonna say inevitable, but uh, you know, it just we said going into the game that Virginia Tech, talent wise was a good enough team to beat Miami. And Vegas certainly agreed. And Vegas was nearly correct. But even when things were going well in that game, you still had this, you know, this feeling in your stomach, like this is going to take a turn for the worse. This is going to go wrong. And, you know, you you know, and, and I am, you know, Ricky, people criticize you of being a negative fan. I'm usually a happy-go-lucky, jolly fan. But, I, you know, it, it's hard to ignore things when they happen to you over and over again. You know, we talked about Justin Fuente against top 10 teams. Has it gotten a win? That was one piece of evidence that made me think, well, this is probably not going to end well. Second piece of evidence, in games that are toss-up games, since 2017, a toss-up game is defined as a game where the spread is three points in either direction. Virginia Tech, one and nine in that period. And these are toss-up games. You should probably, you know, I feel like you could stumble your way to three wins in that category. Lastly, it's just over the past 36 games, Virginia Tech has blown a fourth quarter lead or tie eight times. We had seen this movie before and just for as hard as the defense went out there and, and for the amount of improvement we saw week to week, to see the offense just flatline like that, was it was, it was hard to watch, but it wasn't unexpected. And, and I guess that's why you kind of just, I wasn't even sad after the game. I just felt kind of numb, kind of like I didn't care, which was a weird feeling for an overly emotionally invested fan like me to have. But that's kind of just where we were at. Like I was angry after Liberty. After that, I was kind of just numb. But let's go a little positive here. Virginia Tech on the defensive side of the ball, like you mentioned, Mike, you know, a big improvement. They hold Miami to 4.5 yards per play. 2.7 yards per carry. Now, this is the defense that couldn't stop the run against anyone for the vast, vast majority of the season. What did they do differently that allowed them to have such success? Was it simply the fact that Miami was out a bunch of offensive linemen, or was there more to it? Well, not having all of your offensive linemen certainly helps, but I think what helped Virginia Tech most is they just were in position in the middle of the defense. The linebackers were in position to make more plays on Saturday than they had been in a while. I mean, uh, the issue that Virginia Tech's had all year is that the linebackers haven't always been where they needed to be, right? They're running away from plays instead of running into plays. And I thought Saturday was the first time really in a while that we saw the linebacking core as a unit, everybody play well, right? Dax and Ashby both playing well, coming in and uh, making a lot of tackles and being around the football more often than we've seen throughout the early part of the year. Um, I thought just in general, Virginia Tech was more aggressive defensively than they've been. Uh, Honestly, the defense, it was almost like the defense for much of the season has been playing on their heels and 
you know, some of that has to do with the fact that they weren't healthy early on. And then once they got healthy, it seemed like some guys, especially in the linebacking unit, like we mentioned, weren't necessarily fully comfortable with the new scheme. But Saturday was the first time it actually seemed like the defense was comfortable and knew what they were doing. And a lot of that at the end of the day, I think, comes down to coaching. And, you know, we had Dwight on here last week. And the one thing that he mentioned is that Virginia Tech needed to simplify things schematically. And it seems like they did that, right? And there's not one or there's not one specific thing I can call out from a schematic standpoint where I'm like, oh yeah, they they really simplified things to make it easier on, you know, all eleven guys to perform at a higher level. But with the speed in which Tech's defense was playing against a really athletic Miami offense, the only thing I can point to is the fact that they must have simplified things defensively to make the lives easier on these 11 guys. Because if you are struggling to get in position tackling all year long, you expect to have your worst performance defensively against a team with that much speed. And Virginia Tech really didn't. I thought the defense played pretty well overall. Yeah, Ricky, I mean, there was some tenacity on the part of this defense. They didn't allow really any backbreaking plays. When Miami scored, it was mostly chip, chip, chip away. You know, they forced Miami to go three and out, I believe, seven times, and they turned the ball over on downs at the end of the first half there. Certainly an improved performance. What, what was your primary takeaway? This is going to come off as being a negative Nancy again, but I didn't think Rhett Lashley called a very good game. Um, I felt like Miami was putting themselves in way too many traditional passing situations, and that's not their that's not their gig. It's kind of the same thing with Virginia Tech. Um, Derek King is not best suited in those kinds of situations where he's having to drop back in the pocket and read the defense for two to three seconds uh, consistently. So that's part of it. Now, Virginia Tech does deserve credit because they were in position way more than we've seen them all year. They, their tackling was a lot better than we've seen all year. Specifically, the defensive line was uber productive, six sacks, um, which was just absolutely incredible. And oddly enough, this Virginia Tech defensive line has been quite productive in terms of sacks and tackles for loss. If you look at the overall raw numbers, they're in the top, I believe, 15 in both of those categories. So Bill Tierlink and Daryl Tapp deserve some credit there. Uh, I think that they've been easily the best unit on defense all season long. Amari Barno is really developing into quite the the edge rusher. Um, it's a shame because it wouldn't shock me if Barno finds himself declaring for the draft here in a, in a few short weeks. Um, but he is going to be, uh, I think, kind of a guy to watch out for at the NFL level because of his height and his speed, I think he's a guy that you can mold and develop into someone who's a bit more technical because right now I think he's getting by by uh, pure athleticism. But this defensive line definitely has gotten better, and they controlled the the line of scrimmage for just about all of this game. Um, the defense obviously wore down as the game went on, but I think you still have to give this group credit for playing one of their best games of the year, if not their best game of the season against one of the most potent offenses they've faced all year long. Miami's got four and five-star guys all over the field. Virginia Tech didn't, didn't get busted really at all in this game. I think the longest play for Miami was a 36-yard reception by Mark Pope. That was it. Uh, so give Virginia Tech credit for keeping a lid on this team. Give them credit for putting Miami in some uncomfortable situations and give them credit for giving their offense a chance. This this loss is by no way on the defense. 
even though Virginia Tech's defense did seem to to wilt a bit in in the second half, uh, but you certainly can't put the loss at their feet for this. Yeah, and one thing that kind of sticks out to me is I think Derek King, like by reputation on paper, and as we've kind of seen in practice, is probably the second best quarterback overall that Virginia Tech has faced. We'll put him. We'll put him behind Sam Howe. He had a decent game, but Virginia Tech was able to limit him in both facets, both in the air and on the ground. Now, facing two mobile quarterbacks previously, I mean, we saw saw what happened against Liberty. Malik Willis just owned the show and ran roughshod all over Virginia Tech. And even Malik Cunningham statistically had a better day against Tech. So, Mike, what was Tech able to do to just limit king this was because i was just saying before the game i was saying if this is what willis did and this is what cunningham did well it's going to be the game of Derek king's life but that simply wasn't the case cam mentioned this on the preview but the key to slowing down Derek king is to slow down the zone rushing attack first and i thought virginia tech overall did a pretty nice job of that um, because Derek king when he's most effective like ricky mentioned it's not the traditional drop back passing game it's you know, a passing attack that's built upon the run, right? And it's very similar to Virginia Tech in that regard, even if the actual passing schemes and concepts used are different. Right. And the, the thing about Miami's passing attack in general, like, obviously, first of all, they have more weapons than Virginia Tech does offensively. That's clear. But I think the the one thing that Miami has done a really nice job of is not only running the ball well between the tackles, but running it well outside the tackles as well. Um, Virginia Tech's been kind of hit or miss between the tackles and a lot better getting Khalil Herbert in space. That's kind of been the strength of the team. Now Miami's rushing offense when it's at its best does a little bit of both. And De'Ara King, I thought, really struggled in the drop back passing game, like Ricky mentioned. And a lot of that has to do with Virginia Tech's edge pressure it wasn't just the linebackers playing well in this game. It was being able to get after the quarterback. You know, Ricky mentioned the performance of Amari Barno and how influential he's become to Virginia Tech's defensive line um, because he's in a spot now with Belmar out of the lineup. And Belmar's been out of the lineup now. I think this was his third straight game he missed uh, where, you know, he's getting more reps at defensive end than I think a lot of us expected coming into the year. We expect him to rotate in, but for him to be playing the amount that he has is a testament to not only the injury situation up front for Virginia Tech, but also how far along he's come. Uh, Justice Reed, I thought, played well. It doesn't show up in the stat sheet. He, he only ended up with five tackles, but I thought he did a really nice job getting pressure on the quarterback all afternoon as well. And, and it was just one of those scenarios where De'Ara King was never able to get comfortable. And I think the easiest way for him to, to get into a game and get into the flow of things is for the offense to be moving it with some chunk plays through the air. Uh, which he was never really able to do just because he wasn't able to get set in the pocket. And then in addition to that, Virginia Tech shutting down Miami's attack was so huge. Miami's rushing attack was so huge in this game because they weren't able to get anything going off of the play action, which is something they've been really successful at all year. It's kind of that RPO game where they're able to hit, um, hit some of their receivers, like a guy like Mark Pope in space, D Wiggins in space. And Wiggins had a nice game, but it wasn't a scenario where, he was just bottling off these huge chunk plays. It just didn't really pan out that way at all. So I thought Virginia Tech's defensive front did a really nice job. And I think you got to credit the front seven as a whole for being able to contain the rushing attack and D.R. King the way that they did. 
Ricky, I, I want to ask you this because last week, following the Liberty game, we talked about five things Justin Fuente could do to kind of right the ship and try to save his tenure at Virginia Tech. And one of those things that you listed was reassigning Justin Hamilton at defensive for defensive coordinator back down to a safeties coach role, to a corners coach, what have you. Hamilton, in my opinion, called his best game as a defensive coordinator here in his time at Tech against a very solid Miami team. Now, are they truly deserving of the ranking that they had? I leave that game saying no, and so did the AP poll. Miami drops spots coming to Lane Stadium and winning. But at the same time, I think credit where it's due to Hamilton. Has your opinion on that matter changed at all now that we've seen Hamilton be able to make an adjustment and keep his offense in the game, like you said? Not really. I'm not going to back off of that for one game. I will give him credit because it was clearly one of his best coaching jobs of the season, and he deserves credit for that. But I'm not really going to back off. I do want to note real quick before we move on from the defense, Jared Hewitt had two and a half sacks in this game. Uh, Jared Hewitt deserves a ton of credit. I have been extremely critical of Hewitt really throughout his career because I've always felt like he has never really produced at the level that he was supposed to. And uh, for one of really one of the first times since I've been watching him, I felt like Jared Hewitt was one of the best players on on the field in that Miami game. So credit to Jared Hewitt. He definitely played like a captain in this game. And um, Virginia Tech's defense would obviously benefit from a more disruptive and productive Hewitt in the middle. Yeah, one other guy, I think a couple of guys to give credit to. We already gave credit to Dax Hollyfield. I think he had one of his best games of his Virginia Tech career, led the team in tackles. And Devin Taylor, you know, the transfer from Illinois State, who's been playing in a safety role, which is not really his natural position. I think he looked more comfortable back there than he has so far this season. Big step up. And, you know, in this COVID year, new defense, dude just showed up on campus in like August. And it's obviously a big adjustment to make for him to step up and have a pretty good game, I, I thought was uh, admirable and something that should be noted. Mike, do you have anything else to say about the defense before we move on? No, I don't think so. Shout out Hewitt. Shout out defensive line. Darrell Pollard, I thought, played well when he was in as well. So, All right. Now's the part where this episode might take a little more critical of a turn. The offense, yeah, they got out to a solid lead, a 24-13 to 13 lead with about six minutes left in the third. But from there, you know, it just all went flat. And Andrew, can I read off these, these drives before, before I let you finish? Okay, go for it. So Virginia Tech had five drives on offense after scoring 10 straight and taking a 24-13 lead. Are you guys ready for this? First drive, eight plays, 37 yards, punt. Second drive, three plays, five yards, punt. Third drive, one play, interception. Fourth drive, five plays, five yards, punt. Last drive, 11 plays, 34 yards, turnover on downs. When was the last time we saw a Virginia Tech offense just absolutely go into a shell like that? Uh, you know what, Ricky? I mean, I just don't think we have, <laughs> quite I mean, frankly. What's like, what is that? All right, so well, let's go macro on this and then we can go a little bit more micro. Last week, the ire of everyone was on Justin Hamilton for an obviously poor defensive performance. 
This week, the ire has turned to the coordinator on the other side, a guy who is not unfamiliar with the ire of the Virginia Tech fan base, Brad Cornelson. Do you believe that this criticism is deserved? Are these fire Cornelson calls after this game justified? Mike, go first. I don't think firing Cornelson is necessarily going to start, you know, solve all of Virginia Tech's big picture problems. Like Virginia Tech, I mean, if you if you look at the team over the totality of the season, the reason why Virginia Tech is four and four is because of the offense. It's not because of the defense. The defense has been really bad consistently all year long. This is the first performance where I've looked at and I've been like, okay, that Virginia Tech defense actually looks more like what we needed to. And it took until game eight for that to take place. Virginia Tech has largely had to outscore opponents this year to get to where they needed to be from a four-win standpoint. You know, this was an offense that was averaging over 40 points per game early in the year. They were scoring a ton of points because the defense was so bad. Tech could have easily lost the Duke game earlier this year if it weren't for the offense putting up the amount of yards they did in that football game and scoring 38 points. They score 45 against NC State. They score 45 in a loss in North Carolina. They score 40 against Boston College. They score 42 against Louisville to outscore the Cardinals by a touchdown in that game. They score 35 points against Liberty just to be competitive. Guys, this is not a, this has not been an offensive problem this year. Brad Cornelson has his flaws. There are some play calls that he makes, and certainly in the fourth quarter of this football game is a great example where you look at you know, short side runs on third and 14 where you're running a quarterback sweep and quitting on a drive because you have no trust in the Virginia Tech offense to throw the ball through the air. That stuff's problematic 100%. But firing Brad Cornelson after this game, which isn't going to happen, by the way, they're not going to fire. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> but, fi but firing him after this game, what good does that do? Who are you going to have call in plays? Justin Fuente? Justin Fuente's already said he doesn't want to call the plays, right? And that could ultimately, and who knows, I could ultimately be one of the reasons why it doesn't work out for him in Blacksburg among many. But he doesn't want to call the plays. So we know he's not going to. So why would he fire Cornelson? All that stuff is just fan banter on social media. There's plenty of reasons to be critical of Brad Cornelson for how Virginia Tech's offense looked in the fourth quarter. I think it's totally warranted. I didn't think the play calling was very good. And I think Tech lost the game because the play calling was too conservative in the fourth quarter. I think that's a totally fair assertion. But to say that firing Cornelson is the first move you're going to make instead of you know, making some changes to the defensive coaching staff, that's crazy to me. And look, I don't think they should be making any changes to the defensive coaching staff either. That's where I break from Ricky a little bit, because I think Virginia Tech has had some had some COVID issues early in the year. I think not having a regular offseason to kind of get aligned in a new scheme obviously isn't doing the players any favors. I think it's too early for them to make a move, even though the defense has looked really bad this year. But if you're going to make a change, you're making it on that defensive side of the ball like Ricky's alluded to. You're not making it on the offensive side of the ball, that's for sure. Ricky, one thing, you know, when it came to the way that the game was called with Cornelson, kind of like Mike just mentioned, there just seemed to be a, a lot of complacency. And, and one play that really stuck out to me during the game, it was in the first half, and I, I believe it was early second quarter. So at this point, the offense was still like kind of rolling to an extent. Third and seven at the Miami 37, and they go Blackshear up the middle for no gain. It, to what set up a, a 54 yarder for Brian Johnson. It's a college kicker. A 54 yarder is no cupcake. I feel like you have to be a little more aggressive on that side. Like what's the thought process there 
especially with a guy like Blackshear who hasn't really had, you know, in, in the traditional run game, much success at all so far this year. Is it fear of, of making Hendon Hooker put the ball in the air on a predictable play or, or, or I don't know, explain it to me if you can. It's probably a combination of their lack of trust in Hendon to have success in the traditional passing game. But quite honestly, I think part of this also falls on the offensive line. And this is a, this is a topic that not a lot of people are going to want to have because we've spent the entire season, myself included, praising this offensive line and, and how dominant they've been and how productive they've been and how they have opened up massive gaping holes and opposing defenses all season long for Hendon Hooker and Khalil Herbert and company. Um, Pro Football Focus certainly agrees uh, coming into this game. Uh, Pro Football Focus had Virginia Tech as the second highest graded power five offensive line behind Notre Dame only. Um, But here's the problem. Miami was really the first borderline elite or very good defensive line or defensive front that Virginia Tech has faced all season. So let's go back and look at the ACC teams that Virginia Tech has played so far this season. And let's look at where these teams rank in tackles for loss per game and sacks um, per game. We'll start with sacks. So NC State, NC State is tied for 22nd in sacks. They are 33rd in tackles for, for loss. Duke is tied for 15th in sacks. They're 48th in tackles for loss. North Carolina tied for 15th with Duke in sacks, 60th in tackles for loss. Boston College, 50th in sacks, 88th in tackles for loss. Wake Forest, 60th, 42nd. Louisville, 61st and 49th. So what we're seeing here is that the defenses that Virginia Tech has played have not been very good up front. I think that that's clear. Well, guess what, folks? Miami is really good up front. They've got Quincy Roche. They've got Jalen Phillips. They've got that other guy, Silvera, up front, who looks like an absolute tank. And guess what? Virginia Tech got bossed around a little bit in this game up front. And this is something that Virginia Tech fans are going to have to watch moving forward. And I know this sounds all doom and gloom, but the road does not get any easier, folks. Pittsburgh's got the best defensive line in the country. Clemson's not far behind them. Virginia, Virginia's defensive front has been pretty good even though most of their production is coming from the linebackers. So this, this game almost felt like to me, like it was foreshadowing what we're going to see for the rest of the season. I do not believe Virginia Tech is going to be able to generate the kind of push and, and, and space either on the perimeter or up the middle that we have seen them generate consistently throughout this year because they are finally starting to face some serious competition on the defensive side of the football. Well, you know, Ricky, I, I said in the preview podcast, I, I said with Jalen Phillips and Quincy Roche, this was going to be an NFL exhibition for both Christian Darisaw and Luke Tenuta. You didn't hear the name Quincy Roche all that much. Darisaw, Darisaw did very good against Quincy Roche, but Luke Tenuta did not look very good at all versus Jalen Phillips. And as a collective, as a unit, the Virginia Tech offensive line did not look very good. Whether I mean, Virginia Tech had their lowest rushing output of the game. 
or excuse me, of the season in this game. And they were leading for two and a half quarters. And they had their lowest rushing yardage output of the season. That's because this offensive line got beat. Yeah, no, I mean, again, when, Jalen Phillips is extremely talented and, you know, he'll probably be an NFL guy. He was like a, I think with the top overall recruit in his class. I think he was the number one overall recruit in his cycle. It, indeed, but you should not let a defensive end lead the team in tackles. That means he is all over the field and they had two and a half sacks to, you know, add to that margin. And again, some of those sacks, I said this, this dominant offensive line, you know, they, they, they left a lot to be desired in that pass block game. And it was an issue. And it was part of the reason that a lot of Virginia Tech's drives stalled out, you know, all throughout the game. But you mentioned the low rush output. And this is, you know, another criticism that a lot of people have. Hendon obviously led the team in rushing attempts. Behind him, I think it was 21 for Hendon. Then you have Khalil Herbert with eight. You have... Blackshear with six, and then you have Holston with four. Yep. To me, it didn't make a lot of sense, right? Because first of all, why is Herbert not your bell cow running back? Is he hurt? If he's hurt, why are you playing him at all? And then Holston was running with a certain tenacity. He accounted for two touchdowns. He averaged, I believe, nine yards per carry on the game. They kept going back to Blackshear. So... We have, and I, I don't want to pick on Raheem Blackshear because I don't think that his running style is necessarily conducive for Virginia Tech's offense and the kind of quarterback that Hendon Hooker He's is. not being utilized properly. Yes, yeah, exactly. But again, they kept going back to it and back to it and back to it. Like, Mike, could you try to justify this for me? Like, why, why call a game like that why you know because this running back by committee thing has been the ire of virginia tech fans for for quite some time and it seemed like herbert was our bell cow guy i know he was a little bit banged up but at the end of the day the distribution of carries just didn't make sense to me or a lot of people quite frankly yeah i mean uh, herbert being injured is the reason why he didn't carry the ball more i'm not really looking at that too alarmed i mean he's when he's needed to get the ball this year, for the most part, save for like a drive here or there where Ricky and I have been vocal and have complained that he should have carried the ball a little bit more one drive here or there. For the most part, they've gotten him the football. That hasn't really been the issue. The uh, issue I don't that know I have, if I agree with that, Mike, but go the, ahead. The, the, issue, the issue that I have with Virginia Tech's offense is that it's clear that Brad Cornelson has no trust in anybody to carry the football outside of Khalil Herbert and Hendon Hooker. That's it. I mean, they, they don't trust Jalen Holston. If they did, they would have given him the ball more and he would have gotten more carries before game eight on the season. They don't trust Raheem Blackshear because if they did, he'd be getting more carries. He'd be getting more touches in space. He'd be the player that they were all gushing about and everybody was crying about him not, you know, not being able to be eligible and what, what kind of player he was going to be and the coaching staff was all sitting there talking about how great he was going to be. They're not getting them the ball in space. They're not getting the ball in his hands enough in the running game in a fashion that he needs to. It's simple. This is a one-trick pony offense. It's Khalil Herbert or bust. It's Hendon Hooker or bust in the running game. And if they don't get anything going in the running game, Hooker struggles as a passer. It's as simple as that. This is a one-trick pony offense. Without Khalil Herbert, this offense is really struggling, guys. Really, really struggling. Because they're leaning on Hendon Hooker to take a bulk of the carries, where he's been very vocal about this. Hendon Hooker should not be carrying the ball 20-plus times a game. And it's, it's an issue when he is your sole source of 
uh, rushing yards and rushing attempts when Khalil Herbert isn't right. And Virginia Tech's been fortunate that Herbert's been healthy for most of the season, save for the last few weeks. But Virginia Tech without him is a total lost cause. We talked about how great the running backs, the running backs have been this year. The running game has been this year compared to years past and how um, he's definitely the best running back, Khalil Herbert, the best running back we've had since David Wilson. I think that's fair. I think it's the best running game Tech's had since 2011. But if you remove Khalil Herbert from the fold, this isn't an offense that can generate rushes with a number of different backs. It's one back or bust. They don't have guys who can make guys miss in the open field. That's been an issue for a number of years. And they simply don't have the offensive coordinator, Brad Cornelson, that trusts these guys to make plays in space. It's as simple as that. Ricky, what are your, what are your thoughts on the subject? Well, to be fair, six of the 21 carries that Hooker was credited with were sacks. So technically, Hooker had 15 runs for 112 yards, which is a pretty good clip. But that's not the point. And this goes back to what Mike and I have said, is that you're going to run him into the ground. And there's still three games left to go. And Virginia Tech is not going to face an easy defensive front for the rest of the season. Like, I just got done telling you how good Pittsburgh is. Clemson, we all know how good they are. They're in the top group when it comes to tackles for loss and sacks. And Virginia's right there as well. So this is not going to get any easier. And if you're going to center your offense around the zone read and that's going to be the catalyst, then your offensive line is going to have to step up too. And they just flat out got beat in this game. And I think tech fans need to be worried about this group moving forward because they're going to face serious NFL talent for the rest of the season, specifically from Pittsburgh and Clemson. And I, I don't know how confident I am that Virginia Tech is going to be able to win those battles on a consistent basis. Yeah, again, I, I still take question with the lack of usage of Herbert or usage of him at all, because in my opinion, I mean, this is a big game. Herbert might have been banged up, right? Obviously, he was. He left the Liberty game after the opening kickoff because he didn't feel good to go. But if you're going to risk using him at all, why not use him in the big moments? Why not use him on that third down? Because well, at the end of the day, using him at all, what you could get rocked by Quincy Roche on your one carry of the game and irritate that even more. I mean, if you're not, if you're going to limit him, then don't like severely, then don't use him at all because there's no point having him go on a second down in the first quarter. And then when you need 10 yards or, you know, third and five in the fourth, when you're actually trying to score to win the game, putting in the other guy who hasn't done anything all day doesn't make any sense. I don't like the idea of snap counts personally um, because you're already admitting that the player is not hundred percent. And if they're not hundred percent, they probably don't need to be out there. Yep. If, if they're going to suit up Khalil Herbert and they're going to give him eight carries a game, then damn it, they need to can go ahead and treat him like he's hundred percent and let him go. Yep. Um, because if he's not hundred percent ready to go, then his ass needs to be on the bench. Yep. And that's not a slight to Khalil because I know he probably wants to play hurt and credit to him. But if you're going to dress this guy and you're going to give him eight carries, what's the difference between eight carries and 15 carries? Seriously. Like, obviously there's seven more attempts, but come on. If you're, if you're willing to put Herbert out there and get hit eight times, then what's the difference between eight and 10 times? Yeah. Cause re- really the difference is negligible at that point. So if you're going to, if you're going to dress the guy, then you, you, you got to go with the girl that you that you went to the ball with, right? 
Like you have to ride or die with him. And this, like, I, I know um, somebody brought it up to me that Hennon Hooker coming into this game was the most efficient running quarterback in the country, according to Pro Football Focus. Guess what? Great. Don't care. Um, you're going to put Hendon Hooker out of the game if you continue to have him take this many hits. I'm telling you, his shoulder is already messed up. He's got that brace on. We saw it limit him last year. We saw how he definitely trailed off towards the end of the season. That was because he was hurt. And guess what, boys? He is starting to trail off now through the air. We're seeing inaccurate passes. We're seeing him look a little bit gun-shy in the pocket. It's not going to get any better if you continue to treat Hendon Hooker like he's Jared Lorenzen and he can go out there at 280 pounds and just take hits. The guy's not that big. Yeah, oh, and, man. You know, <laughs> and, uh, and here's one thing. Did you like that reference, Mike? I did. I did. Hey, the, hey, the hefty lefty. Hedden, real quick, the, the good news about Hendon Hooker compared to Jared Lorenzen is that Hendon Hooker's alive. So he does yeah. have that going for him. Yeah, <laughs> uh, hefty lefty, RIP. Here, here's one thing though. To that point, Ricky, maybe, maybe the coaching staff. I don't know. Maybe they've been listening to this podcast or just any podcast. I'm sure, I'm sure we're not. The, <laughs> I'm sure we're not the only ones that talk about this. But we finally saw our uh, Quincy Patterson spells off Hendon Hooker for a running Ooh. package when it's an obvious situation. And guess what? It worked. Wait, where, where in the <laughs> hell has this been? He only got one carry, by the way. Yeah, for nine but yards. Where, where has this been? Like, has he been hurt? I don't think so. Well, he hasn't played, so he's um, not getting hit in I mean, practice. I mean, come on. Like, I just – I don't get it, man. Like, Hennon Hooker ran the ball, excluding sacks, 16 times. Like, that's right in line with his averages over the last several weeks. It's not sustainable. I, I don't care how efficient he is. You can't ask a quarterback that slender of a build – with a history of shoulder problems to continue to carry the load running the football. It's not going to work. And, and, and here's the thing, right? Because generally, and I think that if you listen to all of our opinions on any podcast we did preseason, when, when Fuente said, yeah, all the quarterbacks will be worked in. We were like, oh, no, two quarterback system, three quarterback system, bad Yeah, idea. because we weren't expecting the quarterbacks to be treated like running backs. I mean, Ex and that's exactly what they're being treated like. Exactly. And we know that Quincy Patterson is probably not as good of a passer as Hendon Hooker. But we've also seen him, you know, he is still a quarterback for a reason. He can complete passes. And, yes. if, you put, and if you put him out there and your opponent might know that there's a 95% chance he can run, he's going to run. Well, you know what? Take that 5%, throw a slant to Trey Turner. You can still mix it up a little bit. Take some of the burden off of the shoulders of the dude that's getting wrecked, you know, 21 times if you count the sacks in one game because at the end of the day, the difference isn't going to be much. I, I just want to say real quick the the one thing about this kind of one-footed, one-foot-out deal with Khalil Herbert when they know he's not healthy and they're giving him some reps anyway, it comes down to this, guys. They don't trust anybody else. That's it. They don't trust anybody else to make plays offensively. They'd rather play Herbert at 65 70% than, any, than play anybody else at running back. That's why he still had the most carries out of any running back on the team when he wasn't fully healthy. That's the only explanation I could possibly have for it is they don't trust anybody else in the running game. And that's why he's playing halfway, you know, and I agree with you guys. Totally. It's either you go all in with Herbert and pretend that he's healthy 
or you don't give him any carries at all. It's a killer for Herbert. I get you'd rather have him on the field, this, that, and the other thing, but is 60% of Khalil Herbert better than 100% of Raheem Blackshear? I don't know the answer to that, but it's clear that on Saturday, eight carries for 49 yards isn't enough to be the top 10 Miami team, and that's all that Herbert got in this football game. Well, 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 well here's the thing that I saw, and I guess this is it's a compliment to someone and maybe a, a slight to the coaching staff, but I think that it – maybe I don't know if it's consensus, but it's, it's moving towards it that Khalil Herbert doesn't have much to gain by coming back to Virginia tech next year. He can't waste those legs. He'll go into the draft and get drafted wherever he gets drafted. If he gets drafted at all, I, I think he might. That being said, we look at Raheem Blackshear and like you guys said earlier, they're not using him to the best of his abilities. They're not using him in the right spots. He needs to be kind of in a slot receiver role, catching balls out of the backfield, this, that, and the other. But that begs the question, who is the heir apparent to Khalil Herbert in this, you know, traditional downhill running inside zone scheme? And from what I saw on Saturday, that seemed to be Jalen Holston. But even when he did well, they seemed to move away from him. Like, what was that? The, the heir apparent to Khalil Herbert does not exist. <laughs> it, it, well, it, he, doesn't, he, right, he doesn't need to be as good as Khalil Herbert. He just needs to be the guy that actually runs the plays that Khalil Herbert would have otherwise well, run. Well, and again, I don't think it exists. I don't think there's a back on the roster that can run the, the outside zone as effectively as Khalil Herbert. Holston is definitely not suited to run the outside zone consistently. Um, Keyshawn King, I mean, hell, he can't even get on the field. Raheem Blackshear, who knows what he'll be doing next year. Taj Gary? Uh, well, uh, apparently Taj Gary's not not ready to play, according to the coaching staff. I don't know what the hell that means. Really Chance is. Black, a true fresh. Is it going to be Chance Black next year, a true freshman? Is it going to be Malachi Thomas, another running back, a true freshman? Like, is that who the, who's going to be the heir apparent? There is, there is no long-term answer at running back. I agree. Um, Which is why Andrew Alex has come here with the answer. Oh, Kansas running back Puka Williams. We'll just take all of Kansas's running backs. We'll let them develop there, and they can come here. Moving on. Does anyone have any better ideas? <laughs> <laughs> um, the w- w- one thing I want to talk about because I feel like we're kind of beating a dead horse now is you might be. <laughs> yeah, the growing number of former players who have taken to social media either um, justifiably or unjustifiably and are absolutely trashing this coaching staff. It's not just recent former players like Trayvon Hill or Hezekiah Grimsley, but it's way back guys like Andre Kendrick. And I don't think I've seen this kind of of treatment from the alumni towards the current program ever in my lifetime. Um, And no matter if some of it's justified or not, it is a really, really bad look when you've got players who used to be in your program and left for whether it be graduation or the NFL or transferred out whether it be good or bad circumstances, it is not a good look when those players are almost consistently now talking smack about the current program. Well, look, 
here's kind of how I view it. And this goes to the former players. This goes to a lot of the fan base. We know Twitter has been up in flames basically two weeks in a row now following Liberty and now with Miami. And, and not going to get any better. Yeah. And people who are defending for days, Oh, well he lost to number nine, Miami. It was really close. You know, they're the number nine team in the country. Everyone's overreacting. Here's kind of my, and I don't necessarily know where I stand on evaluating this loss. I've, I've made some of my points clear here already, but when you look at Fuente at this point here in year five, it's not always going to be about the game that was just played. It's about the body of work. And in life, everything is judged on the body of work. Think about how we judge presidents, right? John F. Kennedy is revered as a very good president. John F. Kennedy, he had, he had his screw-ups. Think about the Bay of Pigs, a failed invasion of Cuba that put the Cold War into its coldest point, right? Where are we? Were, is this a History Channel podcast, Andrew? It, it, <laughs> it, 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 might, it might be now, right? But no. So, but John F. Kennedy had his Bay of Pigs crisis, but no one talks about that when they talk about John F. Kennedy. They talk about how he handled the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's or, moments. Or <laughs> yes. Well, he handled that pretty well too, but it's. What you do in the moments that matter most that are able, if you succeed, to overshadow the little faults and deficits and screw-ups that you had during your time as a leader. There we are. Angie, there he is. He finally made it come full circle. <laughs> so if you're Justin Fuente, you have three, four, five Bay of Pigs, Liberty, <laughs> Old Dominion, Duke by 35. Where's your Cuban Missile Crisis? You lose every time you play a ranked team. And so that, so the fan base has all the failures to harp on, but they don't have even one big moment, one top 10 win, one thing that everyone can hang on to and say like, this is the potential. They, they simply don't. So if you're viewing Justin Fuente's tenure as coach or his presidency in a sense, it's only the negatives right now. And, and, and that's why I feel like this fan base has just been beaten down and beaten down and beaten down. And so I understand the frustration. And from the former players that were a part of it, it's even more magnified. The bigger the deal for me, the bigger deal for me is the former players who had success at Virginia Tech who didn't transfer out of the program because they don't like Fuente. I don't care about a 22-year-old who was dismissed that doesn't like Fuente anymore and he's reveling in his failures. I don't care about that as much as I do the alums, the guys who really went out there and performed, the guys like Dwight Vick get on this podcast and openly talk about the issues with the football program. Look, all of this stuff that we've talked about in the past on the podcast about Virginia Tech and, and this coaching staff in particular and this regime failing with alumni relations, all that stuff comes to light when you're not winning football games. We always say winning cures all, right? That's all we ever talk about with any sport, winning cures all. Well, when you're losing games that you're used to winning, like Liberty, when you're losing games against rivals like Miami, that alums, guys who were here from the glory days in the 90s Miami. and early 2000s, they hate Miami. And that's one game every year. We all talk about the, the, the younger fan base, right, which is what we're members of, the younger alums. We all look at this, this Virginia Tech program, and we care about beating UVA and beating North Carolina. Those are the two, right? 
Miami doesn't fall as highly on that list because Miami isn't as good as they once were. But it's this game them. matters to a lot of alums. And you can tell that the animosity that we saw on social media this weekend and losing a very close game that could have easily been won to a top 10 Miami team really bothered some of the older members of the fan base. And I just want to note that because if Virginia Tech wins these games, we don't hear as much from the alums. But when this when this administration shuns out the, the 20th anniversary team, you got the you got Fuente saying he doesn't have time to talk to those guys. The 20th anniversary of the national championship team last year um, doesn't have time to talk to him at the Duke game. Why? Why don't you have time to talk to those guys? That stuff starts bubbling to the surface when you lose games in a rivalry or you lose games you should be winning against Liberty. That stuff all comes to the surface, and it all gets fixed by winning games. But if you don't win games, they have a right to be justifiably upset. Oh, how, yeah. about, how about DJ Parker not knowing who the offensive coordinator is? I mean, what? Like, come on! Like, uh, that's all we've talked about. Laughable. All all we've talked about on here, at least all I've talked about the last couple of weeks, is apathy. Right? Like, there is a, a large section of the fan base now that doesn't care what happens right but if you're if you're the virginia tech coaching staff don't you have a responsibility to not only have met but have maintained some sort of professional relationship with all of these different alums especially those alums who made significant impacts on the program i mean isn't that just part of being a coach agree all i'll say is that this staff doesn't know anything about relationships because if they did they would have established them with the alums and they would have established it in the state and they haven't been able to do either one of those things either with former players or on the recruiting trail they failed miserably both of those things those are two major major reasons why this program isn't where it should be right now well i mean like think about it like this virginia tech is a massive institution that's bigger than, than any one person or any one thing. But we know that Virginia Tech has been here longer than we've been here, and it's going to be around a lot longer than we are, right? So think about the football team like you think about any organization at Virginia Tech. Like, Ricky, you, you were with the collegiate times. I was in a fraternity. Mike, you, were, you played club golf, right? So think about that. You built or were part of building such an organization up to the point where, I mean, I assume we all were felt pretty successful in what we did during our time at college, and you feel like you left on a high note. Now, imagine generate like, you know, not one generation of college students, but say eight years later, the new people running your organization are in your eyes, running it into the ground, and they won't even give you the time of day to talk to you about it. Are you going to go online and say nice things about those people? No, you're going to speak your mind well, because you, you don't have any control about on. the interior anymore. But at, at the end of the day, you still have your voice. I can, I can speak from some experience on this topic. And what I will say is that while some of that situation may apply to me, I have never once felt the urge to um, disparage that organization publicly. Now, maybe that's just me, but um, I, I, I've never, I've never once gotten the urge to be like, you know what, this place stinks. Well, the difference is that football players can blame an adult, grown man that yeah. makes millions of yeah. dollars, and you're not going to go out and disparage some kid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and like, they it, don't go, they don't go out and say like you know, so-and-so player, like, I don't know, they were probably wouldn't say it about Trey Turner, but they're not out there disparaging Trey Turner. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's, 
it's a broader issue just when it comes to building the brand of your program. And we'll, we'll probably spend like a super long episode on this in the off season when we can devote like an entire hour to everything that goes in with this. And there are a couple other alums that I've talked to um, personally that I'd like to bring on later once the season is over um, who have had similar experiences, but it's, it's a really bad look, man. When you've got guys who put in blood, sweat, and tears into this program, and they don't feel like they're being treated like uh, like a family member, and that's what Virginia Tech football and really any collegiate football organization is supposed to be, right? It's supposed to be family. When they recruit you, they don't say we're recruiting you for four to five years, we're recruiting you for the rest of your life. Like we're recruiting you to be a part of this football program. And when you leave, we want you to continue to be a part of the football program. Obviously in an unofficial capacity, we want to help you, we want to support you. We want to make sure that you get your degree. If you left early, we want to make sure that your expertise is, is welcome back and you're welcome back into town anytime. If that's not the culture that's being created in Blacksburg, then obviously something is severely wrong. And at this point, given that we've got now gone into year five of Justin Fuente's tenure, it's hard to see any way that this changes. Yeah. And again, like we're not making this stuff up. These, these are things that people, real people, people yeah. that you might remember from their time on the field actually say. These are and all things that can be that can be backed up by actual evidence. Like it's not just us giving off the record conversations. These are people that are actually putting their opinions out there for the world to see. Yeah. And at the end of the day, right. I agreed with Dwight's thought process insofar as, you know, these guys don't have to carry around the lunch pail anymore. Beamer had his program and Fuente can has have his, but that does not mean that you don't acknowledge the people and you know, the tradition and the times that brought this program to the point where it is a highly recognizable college football program. This is not the Virginia Tech of 1995. And everyone who was here between 1995 and 2015, and even before, played an integral part in, in building this thing up. And you can't just ignore it and you can't just forget about it. And I know Justin Fuente is a busy man and he's got a lot on his plate, but then they need to hire someone to do that for nope. him. This is this is part of the job as head coach. When you sign up to be a head coach, you sign up for this stuff. You're not just a head coach. You're not just a recruiter. You're an ambassador for your football program. And part of being an ambassador is maintaining those types of relationships, not just because it's right and it's what you should do because those people sacrificed to help get your program where it is now, but also because it can help benefit you down the road, whether it be recruiting, whether it be hiring an alumni on your staff, any sorts of those situations. It's just part of the job. And like Mike said, it's one that Justin Fuente has failed severely at. And unfortunately, it took Virginia Tech losing a lot of games starting in 2018 for us to notice. I'd be curious to see what the situation is at other programs. Like, does Mendenhall keep good relations with the guys from the Al Groh era? Like, does, does Mac Brown keep good relations with the guys from who was between Fedora? And I mean, I don't know. They've had so many head coaches over in Carolina. Does Mac Brown keep relations with the guys from the previous Mac Brown era? Probably. But it, it is interesting because the nature of college football right now, and I think it, it's 
maybe because Virginia Tech hasn't actually had to like fire a coach since like the 70s, this program and this community has a different outlook on things because Beamer made everything seem so family oriented. And maybe with the one foot in the door, one foot out the door, coaching carousel nature of college football today, it's not as big of a thing. But I think that if you are here and maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's not a Virginia Tech exclusive thing, but even if it is a Virginia Tech exclusive thing, you are now the head coach of Virginia Tech. And that is a responsibility that you take on. Yeah. And in year five in the program, you're going to start to have to face the music on all these things. Like the honeymoon period ended in 2017, probably. um, And and at at the latest in 2018, clearly. But when the honeymoon period is over, you have to answer all these questions. And right now, Justin Fuente doesn't have any answers. And given the the three remaining games on the schedule, I'm not so sure that he's going to be stuck in that situation for the rest of the year. And We'll talk more about the remaining games, obviously, later in the year, and we'll hit on Pitt in the next pod, which, hell, who knows if there's even going to be a game, considering Pittsburgh at this point we're recording on Monday night, the 16th. Pitt has yet to resume football activities. So who the hell knows if Virginia Tech's going to even be playing this weekend? Yeah, the one final thing I'll add here, too, is when Justin Fuente interviewed for Baylor in the offseason, and that was a fluid situation, we had a podcast on that, and discuss what that was going to do to his reputation among members of the fan base if he were to return. And the one thing that the three of us talked about was the importance of winning this year. Virginia Tech had a really good team coming back. And I I will (laughs) preface this by saying this was before the coronavirus pandemic that we were having this conversation. So some, some elements to this changed a little bit due to circumstance alone, different schedule, et cetera. Anyway, the premise of the conversation was the fact that Virginia Tech needed to win this year as quickly as possible because of the players that they had on the roster and the way that certain fans felt uh, without, with Justin Fuente moving on um, or potentially moving on to the Baylor job, right? That was the big question was whether or not he was going to be able to restore the goodwill with the fan base. And now with him coming back to Virginia Tech and him saying, all right, I'm home, let's do this thing. And Virginia Tech to be playing the way that they are, it's all the more imperative that he comes to the forefront and he tries to establish those relationships in the state of Virginia and with, um, and with alums, right? It's all the more important because the way that a lot of people viewed that when he went and interviewed for the Baylor job was this guy's not all in on Virginia tech. And the one thing that could cure that would be winning. The other thing would be try to reestablish those relationships. He hasn't done either one of those two things. And it's been really something that's plagued him his entire tenure, but something that's, you know, growing old on most of the fan base now, because of what he's been unable to accomplish on the field, but also the relationships that he's failed to establish off of it. Yeah, I, I think that's actually one last thing for you guys. And Ricky, you can go first because I know you're short for time here. Uh, South Carolina, they they break the seal. They pop the champagne. Will Muschamp done there <laughs> after five years. I mean, South Carolina has been abysmal and it wasn't getting any better this year. They, they just absolutely couldn't stop anybody. And Will Muschamp, he was a defensive guy to begin with, and their defense was trash. Not incredibly surprising, but, you know, midway through the season, big power five program in the region makes a move. Does that change the way you guys feel at all uh, about how many coaching vacancies we might see this offseason, how, how, how fast that coaching carousel is going to be moving, or do you think South Carolina was just an extreme situation? I think there may be a few more than I'm expecting, but I I do not think there's going to be a rash of openings. Mike and I actually had a friendly exchange about this earlier 
I think there's going to be a limited number of openings, period. Um, specifically, I do think Muschamp is going to have limited openings because he's too experienced of a guy to not command a giant salary as a defensive coordinator. I don't think there's going to be a ton of Power 5 openings. I don't think there's going to be a ton of G5 openings, at least at head coach. But just overall, broadly, I think that that's going to be the case across the spectrum. Schools do not have money for buyouts. It's just, it's that simple. Virginia Tech is no different. Uh, Virginia Tech is going to be running upwards of 50 million in the hole this year. That may even be a conservative estimate. Who knows? Virginia Tech does not have the money for a buyout. I'm kind of surprised South Carolina has the money for a buyout. I know they're an SEC team, so they probably got money laying around somewhere. Uh, but Virginia Tech is not South Carolina. They do not have that money. Virginia Tech fans need to stop thinking that Justin Fuente is going to be bought out barring some catastrophic failure in these three games. And by catastrophic, I mean something we haven't seen before. I don't think that Justin Fuente is in any risk of being let go this year. I think he's guaranteed at least through next season in hell, depending on how the rest of the year goes and how next season starts, Justin Fuente might be guaranteed two more seasons because that buyout number is still kind of high. Yeah, Virginia Tech, I think, would rather almost be in purgatory than overpay to get rid of a coach and underpay to get a new one that's supposed to be better. Unless you think it's going to be an absolute slam dunk, you don't make a move. I don't think Virginia Tech does it this year. To be quite honest, I'm not sure that South Carolina, but we'll, we'll know depending on who they hire here in the short term, uh, what that ends up looking like. But I'm not even sure if South Carolina has some money laying around to pay a new coach. We'll find out who that's going to be. It's probably going to be someone from the G5 level because I don't see how they pay another big money coach after paying $13 million to Wilt Muschamp for him not to coach. It all comes down to dollars and cents, gentlemen, which is why my prediction is the next coach at South Carolina. Lou Holtz. That's going to do it for us, folks. I am Andrew Alex for Mike McDaniel and Rick and Lou. We thank you for listening to the Hoagie Hangover podcast. As always, the Hoagie Hangover podcast is brought to you by our good friends over at Main Street Pharmacy. If you live in the New River Valley and you want a pharmacy that truly does care about you, look no further than Main Street Pharmacy. Dr. Jeremy Counts and his wonderful staff will take care of everything you need. This pit game kind of in limbo. Maybe not a good sign that Miami had to cancel their next two games after uh, playing us because they were kind of sketchy already. I mean, I don't know. Apparently, COVID doesn't really spread it from team to team on the football field that strongly. So maybe Virginia Tech will be safe. They've had their problems already. Certainly, we are hoping that the game will be played. Either way, if the game does get postponed, we'll, I think there's a solid chance we'll probably come out with you come at you with another podcast anyway seems reasonable we don't really have anything else to do mike got any final thoughts before we go uh rate review subscribe check us out on facebook like our facebook page if you haven't done that yet follow all of us on twitter follow the show on twitter at hokey hangover um but yeah make sure to uh share it with your friends if you can we try to spread this thing as as wide cast as wide of a net as possible so make sure to go check all that out Indeed, indeed. We will be back. You'll probably get the episode on Thursday. I will try to prepare another ridiculous metaphor between now and then. But until then, my friends, enjoy yourself. You know, don't get COVID. It sucks. Uh, and it, it, so, yeah, social distance, wear masks, do stuff like that. It, it's all for the best. Until then, go Hokey. Okay.